Welcome to the podcast series of the Winning Peace Conference, which will take place on the 11th and 12th October 2018 at the German Federal Foreign Office in Berlin. You can find info about the registration program and invited speakers on our website win-peace-conference.berlin. The link is in the description of the podcast. I am happy to have Jennifer Keane today to talk about her work on the history of the United States of America in the First World War. Jennifer Keane is Professor of History and Chair of the History Department of the Chapman University in Orange, California. And she actively contributed to the American historical debate with her work on the soldier's point of view during the conflict, a task she undertook already 15 years ago. Her last monography, World War I, The American Soldier Experience, published in 2016, is mostly devoted to this topic and gained international attention. Good morning, Jennifer oh, Good morning. Very glad doing? to be here. Oh, very well, thank you. <laughs> so we're going to talk about, about your work on the American experience during First World War. And uh, well, I'd, uh, I'd like to first talk about, well, everything before the war. The neutrality, because America entered the war only in April 1917, as, uh, as you know. And I would like to know <coughs> uh, briefly, if you could talk about, about it briefly, um, what does neutrality mean in 1914? And how was it understood, defined, and practiced? Could you, could you talk about that for? Absolutely. Uh, for the United States in, in, in August of 1914, uh, Wilson gives a very famous address, his neutrality address, and he tells Americans that they have really no part to play in this conflict. Everybody expects a short war. He knows that America has just experienced these recent waves of immigration, people who have come from all the areas that are, are currently at arms with each other. And he's, he's concerned in the beginning about people taking sides and it turning the country, tearing the country apart. So he urges Americans to be neutral in thought as well as deed. And so this concept of neutrality, meaning impartiality and not taking sides, to a certain extent, is the first definition of neutrality that Wilson offers. But that unravels very quickly. And part of the problem is that when the war is not a short war and when the Western Front is established and now both sides are digging in, um, both Britain and Germany turn to the seas and try to use a naval war to gain the advantage. And once a blockade is established by Britain and Germany begins using U-boats and, and a campaign of unrestricted submarine warfare, this threatens American trade with Europe. And America has traditionally had uh, a stronger trading relationship with Britain and France than Germany. And of course, the naval war exacerbates this. And so by 1915, with the sinking of Lusitania in May of 1915, we see Wilson really changing his conception of what neutrality means. And he changes from this idea of impartiality to a notion that uh, neutrality means neutrals have rights and those rights must be respected by nations at war. So in other words, they can't wage illegal types of trade warfare um, against neutral nations. And that will be a definition that he really holds on to all the way until April of 1917. And so the series of crises that we see between the United States and, and Germany all revolve around this idea that Germany is not respecting America's rights 
to travel where they want, to uh, trade with whom they like, and this provokes the crisis that we see in the in the winter of 1917. So the biggest problem is the definition. There is no common definition of neutrality. Uh, exactly, and that and that's argued within the United States as well. So there are people who. Uh, always adhere to that original definition of impartiality and people in some sections of the country who will say, well, I mean, the best way for us not to be involved in this war is to stop trading with the allies and stop sailing on boats that are going into the war zone and stop loaning money to Britain. But then there are other people who who argue, first of all, this would really hurt the American economy. Um, there is increasing sympathy for the allied side over this period And also people that begin to feel that Germany represents a greater threat to American national security than that they had thought in 1914. And this is when we start seeing examples of German aggression against the United States. It's well known that there's German spies operating within the country who are blowing things up. Um, of course, you have German uh, uh, agents trying to stir up trouble in Mexico um, along the Mexican-American border. Uh, and that kind of all culminates with the Zimmerman telegram, which is this very famous missive that uh, Zimmerman sends to um, the consulate in Mexico, suggesting that Germany and Mexico form an alliance if the United States enters the war. And that's not something that's really taken seriously as a real threat, but it, it shows intent. And it shows that, Germ that Germany seems to have an aggressive intent against the United States. And so... So the argument over what def what neutrality is and how to best protect neutrality is neutrality really impartiality? Is it is it really just about keeping America out of the war, um, or is it trying to establish principles of international law that all nations have to obey? And we see all these different uh, definitions being offered and then debated in the period before America actually enters the conflict. Would you say that this is a debate that? took place mostly in, or maybe only in America, or is it something that we see in other countries um, which remained neutral over the country, over the conflict, such as uh, Spain or Switzerland or Mexico or Chile? You, you definitely see this, not the impartiality one, but certainly the rights of neutrals. You certainly see that in the Scandinavian countries, which are in some respects hurt way more than the United States by the, by the blockade. And so the notion that they can't, that, that, you know, that, that, that they're having difficulty receiving goods because the, the idea is that um, Germany is funneling goods through these neutral nations that, that and so of course Britain's trying to, to cut off that trade as well. You see the United States also in 1916, for example, uh, for leveling some protests against Britain and the way that it's enforcing the blockade. And it joins with uh, some Scandinavian countries in that, in that protest. And that's because 1916 is the period when Germany has pledged to stop sinking merchant ships and passenger ships without warning. And so that kind of creates a, a short period where relations actually improve between the United States and Germany. And then it's Britain that people begin to turn their attention to in terms of violating international law. And, and a very short period of anti-British feeling in the United States that they're um, putting too many goods on the contraband list, that they're intercepting too many ships. Of course, you have the Easter Rising in Ireland. We have a strong Irish-American population in the United States. And so there, there is this moment um, where it almost looks like 
um, not that the United States would ever go to war against Britain, but that it's, it's, it's not, it's sort of seeing more equality in the violations by, by both belligerents. But once Germany resumes unrestricted submarine warfare in January of 1917, that really swings the pendulum back to people mostly just focusing on German violations. But it's a good point because for the people who argue that there's no reason for America to fight this war and the problems that America has, they've created for themselves. These are the people who would say there has been a kind of one-sided criticism of violations of, of international law, that the administration has not been even-handed and it's just as easy to blame Britain, even in the Lusitania, for example. Why are they putting women and children or allowing women and children to sail on a ship into the war zone on a ship that's carrying munitions? You William Jennings Bryan, Secretary of State, resigns um, because that's his argument, that, that this is the British are as much to blame as the Germans in this case. It's not the moment, actually, to just be blaming Germany. But obviously, that isn't the side that prevails at the end of the day. Mm. And would you say, well, you, you just mentioned the fact that there are big tensions between the USA and uh, their former or their... Um, Their partners, such as Britain, um, how would you say that in the country? How was this this neutrality perceived? And would you say that the, the American society is at peace during this period of neutrality, or, or or how should we define peace if not? Well, that's a very interesting question because, for I guess there's two ways to look at it. One is how peaceful is the United States within its own borders? And then is it really uh, a non-belligerent power throughout this period? This is the period when the United States is really pushing hard in the Western Hemisphere to control uh, the Caribbean. Uh, we've just built the Panama Canal that opens uh, exactly the same time that the war begins in 1914. The United States is pushing aggressively to control this region. So, for example, we do We do have, have a fighting in 1916. We invade Mexico. And the people like to forget about that, but that's pretty important because when you want to talk about Wilson as a president who doesn't believe in the use of force, that is an argument that only works when you're looking at Europe. It doesn't work if you're looking at what's going on in the Western Hemisphere because he's completely willing to use force to assert American dominance in the in the in the region. And And so that's one thing. The second thing is that America is a very conflicted society at this point. We have huge class tensions. We have a lot of tensions over assimilating immigrants, obviously racial violence. It's one of the worst periods of racial violence in American history. Uh, uh, women are pushing for suffrage and, and that that campaign becomes violent at moments. So there's a, there's, there's a lot of tension within American society. And, and those are things that Wilson is actually concerned about when it comes to fighting the war because his first administration is really focused primarily on curbing the, the power of big business and trying to um, have a sort of more equal distribution of wealth so that we don't end up with a Bolshevik revolution at home. Um, but once he has to put those domestic goals aside and fight the war, he now has to think about how he's going to unify a population which doesn't automatically see itself as having a lot of interests in common. And so when we look at how America mobilizes immediately upon entering the war, uh, something like the Committee on Public Information, which really 
of masterminds, the first central propaganda campaign run by the federal government in American history. And you look at some of this propaganda, it seems so over the top, it's everywhere, it's, it's so pervasive. But if you understand how fragmented the government felt the population was, you can see that why they felt they needed to respond in this way. They couldn't, it's one thing to take for granted that people see Germany as the enemy, but are they willing to put all their other differences aside in order to fight this conflict? That's not a sure thing. I mean, the United States is still, in a sense, sort of reconciling from the Civil War. And there's a lot of emphasis placed on the fact that this is the moment when the North and the South can finally come together and all fight as Americans. So even that is still dividing people. And that's, in some ways, I think, why you see just this heavy-handed, centrally uh, controlled mobilization process in the United States. Hmm. And how did this happen? How did this How did this nonviolent president, or well, pictures are non pictured at, as as a nonviolent president, the president uh, Wilson, decides to go to war, and how did it how did it manage to convince this very divided American population to enter the conflict, a conflict which is overseas? mostly overseas and um, with this whole background of racial violences and tensions. Well, how did this happen? Well, really beginning in January of 1917, in a sense, Germany makes a series of moves that probably help unify American public opinion around the notion that Germany does pose a threat to national security. So I've already mentioned Uh, two of them, this is uh, the resumption of unrestricted submarine warfare and then the Zimmerman telegram, but also some American merchant ships are sunk and you begin to have a sort of increasing rhetoric from uh, a group of Americans who have been clamoring for the entire period that America is unprepared, that, that Germany could turn to us next that all you need is Germany to be establishing, for example, some some U-boat bases in Mexico, and then they can threaten the Caribbean. What ha- If the Allies lose the war, what happens if they get a foothold in Canada? You start getting this sense that it's not just about going over there to save Britain and France, but actually America has its own self-interests here. The British Navy has has been a protector of American shores. America has benefited from that relationship in terms of its its trade in the Atlantic and in, in terms of, of helping make the um, Atlantic Ocean a buffer rather than a, a highway that people could use to get to, to America. So there's that component. But then, on, but then there's also the way in which Wilson is really ramping up uh, The, the emphasis on American exceptionalism. And America always believes that when it fights, it fights for reasons that are, in, in, to a certain extent, more idealistic and more altruistic than the rest of the world. So in, 19, in January of 1917, Wilson also gives his Peace Without Victory speech. And this is the notion that this war has demonstrated the corruptness of the international order. And the, that order ha- has, the war has to destroy that and something better has to take its place. And this is where he begins to articulate the principles that we'll see him develop more fully through 
once America's in the war, the 14 points, then going to Versailles. And, and in his war address in April of 1917, that's another one of these moments when he begins to develop these no- the notion that America has a unique role to play in, in this war and in, and in the history of the world. And only by America entering can, can this happen, that America alone even says this, you know, we have no selfish ends to serve. I'm emphasizing how America, in fact, is feeling that it has a selfish end to serve, which is to defend its border. But, but he, he really de-emphasizes that in the word dress and sort of ends on this note that, you know, we are but the servants of mankind, that we alone are going to make this terrible war mean something. And what it will mean is permanent peace. And so he sets up America to feel not only that Germany uh, is dangerous, but as Americans, we have this exceptional destiny that we must embrace. And that that resonates with so much of American history, Manifest Destiny, this city on the hill, all these ideas that are kind of founding myths of the nation, Wilson taps into. And for that reason, he has been depicted, depicted as, a, as an idealist. Uh, and you have been arguing a lot, a, a lot against this idea and uh, defending the idea that he was actually very pragmatist um, when he produced his 14-point speech. Could you talk a little bit about this and, and what was his aim and um, why he failed to, to implement this policy? Just right. It's such an interesting question to think about whether what Wilson is proposing is idealistic or realistic. Because in many respects... Um, if you look at what happens in the 1920s, there aren't many people who disagree with his um, diagnosis of what's wrong in the international system. It's, it, is, it is wrong to, um, well, not wrong, but, but it, it's, these are arrangements that are going to cause tensions. If you think about uh, setting up barriers to trade, um, engaging in an arms race, um, privileging a, a quick, uh, using war as as a, a kind of some as using war as a way to advance your foreign policy initiative. Now that war has become so destructive with modern technology, um, the notion that um, autocratic regimes are going to be able to continue to exist, especially in an, in a new world where. Uh, a competing ideology is now on the on the scene, not just democracy, but communism. And I think that in in some respects, what Wilson is recognizing is the the corrupt core of the international system. That's one way that he's realistic. I that he's realistic because the proposals that he makes are things that are only going to benefit the United States. So he's also realistic in thinking about not just the idealistic part of his war address, but the other part of his war address where he identifies Germany as the major threat, the major international threat for the United States. And, and in something like the 14 points, he identifies other threats. It is a threat to the United States that European nations are starting to create these empires worldwide in Asia, in Africa, and America is being left out of that race. So if you can encourage uh um, European empires to embrace self-determination, to sort of be, uh, embrace open trade, to not be carving up these regions, that benefits the United States. 
America traditionally has a small peacetime army. He knows that even if America wins this war, there's no way that America will support a large standing army afterwards. So it's, it's realistic to try to get everybody else to disarm. And then again, that puts America more on an even playing field. And the notion that the, the, the balance of power alliance system has broken down and why not replace it with collective security agreements where people can be airing problems, discussing them in a kind of league of nations is, isn't to a certain extent also a way to give the United States influence over world affairs without being in binding alliances. If they, if they sign defensive alliances like France wants them to after the war, then they are obligated through the League of Nations, they, they, to a certain extent, you know, as Wilson argues, they can be advised about what they need to do. But he, of course, doesn't see it as an obligation. Now, that's where he, the, the, and the, uh, the critics of the Versailles Peace Treaty end up winning the day because, of course, they argue if even if it's not a legal obligation, it's a moral obligation. And that would be breaking with American practice in terms of diplomatic affairs. But I do believe that we should be careful not to dismiss Wilson and his ideas so quickly as just idealistic dreams that to a certain extent, the, the diagnosis of the problem and his proposals for solutions were actually things that the international community embraced and tried to implement throughout the 1920s. Even though the United States had not ratified the Versailles Peace Treaty, the subsequent Republican administrations embraced Wilsonian ideals. They didn't call them those, but they really basically followed the blueprint that he had laid out. So, so they, people thought there was some realistic possibility that this was the path to peace. And if you look at the 20th century, we still believe that they're realistic goals. We're still trying to meet them. Our, our, we always, di- again, diagnose our problems is when we fail to embrace these principles, not that these principles themselves are uh, irrelevant. I would, however, suggest not to get too into present politics, that probably the current administration in the United States is probably the first administration in 100 years who is rejecting those principles, who is saying this is not the way America needs to behave in the world, that we, we should be thinking about America first unilaterally, not thinking about alliances, not thinking about leading uh, not thinking about being part of collective security agreements. So it's interesting to, to think that a hundred, are we finally at a moment in a hundred years where there will be a discarding of that Wilsonian vision and a realignment along different principles that will kind of set the world and the United States on a different path in the 21st century. An interesting question that you just raised is um, uh, how we look at uh, the heritage of Wilson and uh, and we are today or the American presidency is today um, trying to reshape um, the place that the United States are uh, occupying on the world stage and um, <clears throat> do you think that this is something that is made possible because the first world war is in America actually uh, almost n- a, a topic that that is not really studied at a university and taught in colleges and school, and maybe a, pro- a product of a bigger problem in the 
commemorative culture and the remembrance of uh, the First World War in America. Would you agree with this? Mm. That's an interesting question. I, I don't think that what the administration is doing today is necessarily um, a direct result of not understanding <clears throat> the importance of the First World War in American history. I think that in part, it's more a reaction to the overextension of America because of Cold War policies, which really took this notion of, of not not fighting German um, aggression, but fighting communism to a to a scale that really created a backlash among a lot of Americans on the left as well as on the right. But I do think that it's in, it's it's relevant based on what I said earlier. This notion that these Wilsonian principles represent idealism. And if you want to be a hard-nosed realist politician, self-interest and selfishness, those are the guiding principles that you have to embrace. And that is almost going back to more of a 19th century notion of how to protect national sovereignty and to see yourself in a race for survival of the fittest. And your, your win is somebody else's loss that instead of uh, a Wilsonian notion that you collectively rise and you you pull everyone up together, there's this sense of of a competition to the to the death. And so, this is a a different type of approach to an international relations, certainly at least rhetorically and ideologically. Because, of course, as I've already said, Wilson certainly had American self-interest at heart as well. But the larger question of how you know, Americans remember the First World War is also um, a good example of how Americans forget things. In the 1920s, Americans did not forget the First World War. It shaped their foreign policy. It shaped the American landscape. Their World War One monuments everywhere in the United States. Every town had one. These could be in the form of markers with soldiers' names, statues, buildings, stadiums, parks. It's now that we're in the centennial years and people have gone back and started actually cataloging these places, it's just an overwhelming number of commemorative activities that Americans um, participated in to remember what they felt would be the pivotal historical event of their lifetimes. Of course, when you get to World War II, that starts to overshadow in the United States, like in Germany, the memory of the First World War, because it was a bigger conflict for the United States, longer, a two-front war. There seemed to be more at stake for America. And it was the war that unequivocally catapulted the United States into a position of world leadership. Whereas the 1920s, America was hedging on whether it really wanted this role, even though in the 1920s it had the strongest world economy. So in that sense, the, the way that we remember the war 
uh, we've lost the fact that we ever remembered it at all. Okay, so there's that. But then the question is, well, that's nice to know, but what difference does it make for actually understanding America today? And why should we care? Because in some respects, 100 years is just an artificial construct. Why is something worth remembering because it happened 100 years ago? Why is it 101 years ago or 98 years ago, the, the important moment to realize it? And I think that it's important for the United States because it actually illustrates a lot of important things about America, sort of where we are today. And so, for example, if you think about the, the problems we're having right now with civil liberties, where we've, we've had some terrorist attacks, uh, we've had very strong powers given to the federal government to investigate, interrogate, to incarcerate people suspected of terrorist activities. And we think about how America in the First World War responded to the threat of German spies. And the same thing, very draconian laws passed, some of the strongest laws we've ever had, uh, sedition law that basically made it illegal to criticize the government. And there are some parallels there about how do you, in a moment of crisis, uh, fight that crisis and protect national security, but also protect civil liberties within the United States? How far do you are you willing to go and how much are you willing to give up to feel safe? And so in that sense, the First World War period offers a good, uh, some good instruction to the United States about the dangers of, of going too far in um, allowing the government to handle these threats for you. The second important parallel between the two eras has to do with simply the, the place where America is fighting its wars right now. We think about American involvement in the Middle East and why the Middle East is so important and why there's so much conflict there. If we go back to Versailles and we see the territorial arrangements being made when the Ottoman Empire is being dis dismantled, we can certainly begin to see the origins of the Middle East as a trouble spot and America sort of participating in that process of creating the current conflicts for today. And for a lot of Americans, there's this sense of throwing up their hands and saying, well, things have always been terrible in the Middle East and it's always been a mess and it's just the way it is, which is not true. <laughs> it's not the way it always is. And it was a created set of problems um, by, by Western Europe that America should see some responsibility in informing. So there's, there's that comparison as, as well. And yeah, so I think that there's, there are some other reasons to be thinking about why the First World War is, a, is important to American society today beyond the notion that, oh, it's 100 years ago, so therefore we should remember mm. it. And what do you think that should be done? Well, I mean, you've been publishing a few books um, about uh, the soldiers' experiences, for example, but also broader synthesis of the American experience uh, during the, the, war, the war. And uh, those books are really designed for students or a broader public. Um, what can we do more than, than publishing books to, to initiate a debate and uh, public reflection on the role of America during the First World War, for example, or its experience? Well... And to some extent, extent, isn't that what the purpose of this conference is, isn't it? Exactly, to, uh, to, uh, to take this history and to think about its relevance for today and 
provide a forum for people to be reflective about these comparisons. And that's where I would say the centennial is helpful because it offers a moment where people decide to pay attention to the First World War. You can you have a, an opportunity to make this case through conferences, through the press, through public lectures um, to actually uh, point out the value of studying history. It's a it's a hard it's a hard um, task because you have to first have an audience that's even willing to think that the past has something to offer the present. Again, I don't know intellectually within the United States if we're really in a moment where people are interested in the past. They, people are more interested in the present and the sense, as I've said, that you can almost operate in a, a historical vacuum when you think about the next step to take. But it's important, nonetheless, to keep pressing and to keep making the arguments and hopefully um, as we as we move out of the centennial years, there's been enough of this that people begin to think that it's not just the Second World War that we should look, but we should look farther back in the century to really understand how we got to where we are today. And and this this is happening in some other areas it's in the United States, which is quite interesting. We've had this, this is a little bit of a tangent, but as you probably know, we've had these these quite volatile controversies over Confederate statues in the United States. And while a lot of that reflects the current state of American politics, one of the things that those controversies have allowed is for some uh, historical reflection of why are these statues here? What do they mean? Why are, why, why are they considered so controversial to so many people in the country? And of course, you can't, the answer to that question is going back to the period around the First World War. It's going back to the period around you know, 1895 to 1920 when these monuments were being constructed and what is going on. And, it, and to a certain extent, it's part of that story is the reconciliation between the North and the South that was necessary to fight the First World War. So even in that controversy, you can't understand it unless you, you go back and see why these monuments were created, not right after the Civil War, but in fact, 50 years later. And so these are opportunities. This is what we should do as historians, not just be content to teach our classes, write our books for our students and talk to each other. But we should definitely be trying to make a difference through the knowledge that we have for the, for the present issues and challenges that our societies are facing. Thank you, Jennifer. You will be there at the Winning Peace Conference. Uh, on 11 and 12 October 2018. You can find more information about the registration or the conference in general uh, on our website win-peace-conference.berlin. We will have more podcasts to come uh, featuring Australian historian John Beaumont and uh, many more in the days to come. Thank you.